Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FYI. I'm Nicholas Gruss. I'm an analyst at Arc working on the next generation internet theme. And with me today, I have a special guest host, James Wang, who is a former Arc analyst and current Arc theme developer. With us is our guest, Griffin Cockfoster co-founder of Nifty Gateway, one of the premier online marketplaces for NFTs. Before we hear from James and Griffin, let's just give some background on NFTs. A non-fungible token, or NFT, is a cryptographic asset that represents digital uniqueness. NFTs hit the scene in August of 2017 on the Ethereum network with the launch of the ERC721 token standard. One of the first implementations of this standard was the digital collectible game CryptoKitties, and we've come a long way since then. CryptoKitties originally allowed players to purchase, collect, breed, and sell virtual cats. Since then, NFTs have evolved to include digital real estate, video game items, digital art, and music. We think this market is going to have enormous implications for virtual worlds and the virtual economy. So with that, let's hear from our guests. Griffin, James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think we should just jump right into it. Griffin, you are the co-founder of Nifty Gateway. Why don't you open up, talk to us about the NFT space, what NFTs are, and how you got started in the space. Cheers, Nicholas. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Yeah, for the people who don't know, NFTs are a new application of blockchain technology that just lets you make digital items scarce, lets you make you know, digital art collectible for the first time ever. My brother and I, since we started Nifty Gateway, have kind of been spent years explaining it to people. So it's been really weird to see everybody else talking about them recently. You know, I think the hype has kind of like reached new levels. But, you know, all it is is a unique type of blockchain token that's globally unique, which you can buy and sell the same way you buy and sell like unique baseball cards or, you know, unique paintings or unique diamond bracelets, anything like that. I don't know, James, you have anything to add? That's great. And I'm so glad you and your brother started Nifty Gateway. I'd love to hear, like, what was the origin idea? I'm sure you had a bunch of ideas on what to do as a kind of a startup idea and how long Nifty's been around and what the kind of, I don't know, the first few months of the experience was uh, starting this company. Yeah, that's a great question. So Nifty started, both my brother, Dump, and I, we went to separate colleges, even though we're identical twins. We kind of just wanted a little bit of space. So... After about five or six months of graduating, like about five or six months after graduating, I was working at Jet.com in Hoboken and he was working at Accenture in the Bay Area. But I think we both kind of realized the whole, the whole big company thing wasn't for us. And like we'd always had like startup ambitions. And we just kind of like got into reading a lot about podcasts, like 
or you know, reading a lot about startups, listening to podcasts, reading Paul Graham essays, reading startup history books. I think we were both just kind of like, well, you know, I think we could do this. Like, it doesn't seem that bad. Like, we could just like give it the old college try. And like, if it doesn't work out, it'll be a good learning experience. So long story short, we both ended up quitting our jobs about one year out of college directly. And I had like worked on another startup for a few months before that, but Duncan was the one who got into NFTs originally. And he just, that was around the time CryptoKitties was taking off, or it was actually a few months after CryptoKitties had taken off. And it was kind of an NFT winter, but Duncan was looking at the technology and he said, like, I think there's really something here. Like, you know, I think these, this is going to be a technology that matters. At first I was like, digital collectibles, like literally who the hell cares? Like, you know, can't you just screenshot it? Like that was me for the first like two months when Duncan was in the Nifties. And I was like, you know, but then I saw like the community around Nifties. And like, I think this happens for a lot of people where they're skeptical at first, but then they see like how much genuine interest and traction there is. And then they try buying their first Nifty. And all of a sudden it's like $5,000 later. And they're like, whoa, what the hell happened? Like, how did I just spend so much? Cause it's like so addictive. So yeah, Duncan got into it first. And originally our idea was just to make NFTs accessible. So back then CryptoKitties, Decentraland, like there were a few of the NFT projects that are around today were back then, but all of them you had to buy using cryptocurrency. You had to like buy using Ethereum or like they sold it to you for other cryptos. So our first idea was like, let's just make NFTs accessible. So we let you buy a Nifty with just a credit card. And the way that worked is you would pay us with a credit card and then we would spend the Ethereum to buy that NFT for you and then send it to your wallet. So it was kind of very much a V1 where we just let people buy some popular NFTs with a credit card, but they still had to have a wallet and they still had to like set everything up. And so after about seven months of doing that, we got introduced to the Winklevoss twins who were really excited about NFTs and looking for an opportunity. So we decided to partner up with them. They acquired our company through Gemini. And then we started building what Nifty Gateway is now, which is a full end-to-end platform. That's a centralized NFT exchange where you can buy with a credit card or with cryptocurrency where we partner with some of the biggest artists in the world to like help them create NFTs that their fans truly love. So, you know, that's like a bit of a history. It's been kind of a whirlwind two years, but you know, and that's kind of landed where we are now. And we launched Nifty Gateway's current platform about 11 months ago. And last month we did $75 million in sales. So the growth has kind of just been, you know, definitely more than we expected, especially given where we started out in Nifty's back two years ago. And like, no one cared about the tech and like, I don't know, our college friends were shunning us and our parents, we're less than enthused about <laughs> the decisions their two sons took. Griffin, just on that, I think today people do care about the tech very much so. So can you just walk us through you know, what the underlying tech is, what platforms are being utilized to build NFTs, and why this is such a revolutionary shift for digital content? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, the best way to understand the tech is to start with Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin is, you know, the original like scarce item. And it was such a breakthrough at the time and still is, you know, one of the most important pieces of technology ever created. But by creating the distributed ledger proof of work technology, you know, Satoshi was able to create a digital item that was scarce for the first time in history. And there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins made. And that, you know, at first, like that scarcity applied to only fungible things where Bitcoins are interchangeable with one another. You know, the same way a dollar is interchangeable with another dollar, like they're completely fungible. And so it was about five years after Bitcoin was founded. And, you know, once Ethereum really got popular, which was, you know, obviously like Ethereum is probably the second biggest breakthrough in blockchain after Bitcoin itself, I think, that people started to like ask the obvious question instead of like only making fungible digital items scarce, 
like why not also make unique digital items scarce? You know, the people who are thinking we have like digital items in video games and we have, you know, digital items in like RuneScape and like digital items were already a thing that people were paying a lot of money for. So it wasn't so crazy to say, well, if we can make digital currency scarce with Bitcoin, like why not try just making scarce digital collectibles? And then with Ethereum, they were able to attach an image to the scarce tokens that they created. And that's kind of like where NFTs ended up today. So it's a very powerful technological primitive. Like most of them are on Ethereum. There are a few other blockchains that are trying to like focus on NFTs. But you know, most of the ecosystem still lives on Ethereum, where I personally like think it will stay. And yeah, it's just a globally unique blockchain token, similar to like how a Bitcoin is a blockchain token or like any of the other cryptocurrencies built on Ethereum, like Aave or like Uniswap are also blockchain tokens. The only difference with NFTs is that they're globally unique. They're like one of a kind. Griffin, we're jumping straight into the tech here and, and that's awesome. But I think a lot of the listeners are going to be quite new to this and probably looking for a, you know, there are three kind of like top level questions everybody asks when they get into this. So I think we should just get at least the number one of those questions out of the way, which is why do these digital tokens have value, especially for art where you can just screenshot it, right click and save as. And when you say you own a, you know, one of one of uh, an artwork by, you know, Banksy or, or Mad Dog Jones, yes, you own the token, but the original JPEG in full resolution is available for everyone to basically get. There's not even a slightly differentiated version that you might get. It's it, literally you're owning the theoretical ownership of it, not any practical ownership of it. How should people at large think about these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. And that is always the first thing people ask. It's the first thing my parents and many other family members asked when Duncan and I started the company a few years ago. But yeah, it is interesting. The same way like Bitcoin really makes you rethink a lot of the foundations of money and Ethereum really makes you rethink a lot of the foundations of the financial system and the whole, you know, the foundations of the legal system and things like that. NFTs really make a person rethink the foundations like valuable collectibles, that whole asset class of art, of sports memorabilia, all that, you know, NFTs kind of make you like dig deep and like ask the question, what is it really that gives Air Jordan 1s their value or the original Homeless Wagner like baseball card its value? And the answer that people have arrived at is authenticity. You know, these things are only valuable because they're certified by the artist as being authentic. I could easily go print out another LeBron James rookie card and I could stick it on a piece of cardboard and like stick it in a plastic casing and I could probably even make it look exactly like the original. But it wouldn't be worth anything to anybody who, who knew like where it came from. You know, the people who knew where it came from and knew that I had just printed it out would think it was worthless because it is worthless. Because like the only thing that makes a LeBron James rookie card valuable is the fact that it's authentically, provably like the LeBron James rookie card. And the exact same thing is true of NFTs. They allow an artist to create a token and certify that those tokens are the authentic, one of one, like valuable piece of that like digital collectible which is what gives it value, you know? It's like definitely counterintuitive at first, but once you kind of like get over that that hump, like it really starts to make sense to people. And the beauty of blockchain technology, I mean, the numbers are just crazy for the uninitiated. They see like Steve Aoki sold an NFT on Sunday actually to the CEO of T-Mobile and the CEO of T-Mobile bought it for $888,000, which is, you know, crazy. Like some of the most like valuable baseball cards trade for a few million. Like it's not that much higher than that. But the really cool thing about NFTs is that the authenticity is impossible to fake. In the art world, people, there's actually, people don't know this, but there are a lot of issues with 
prints being forged and just being faked. And it, it's actually genuinely a big issue. Like there were committees that formed to authenticate the work of Andy Warhol that had to disband because like they tried to authenticate what was authentically an Andy Warhol and what wasn't, but they just couldn't. Like Andy Warhol's stuff is so easy to replicate. You can just like print out a picture of a Campbell's soup can and bring it and be like, oh, I found this like in my grandmother's attic. Like I think it's an authentic Andy Warhol. And like, it's, you know, who the hell is going to be able to prove you wrong? Like nobody, like they're genuinely very, very difficult to authenticate. And it's actually a big problem in the art world. But in order for something to be valuable, it has to be authentic. So NFTs just have this authenticity built in. That's the default. And it's impossible. It's the best authentication technology that's ever existed. And so that just like gives them value in a lot of counterintuitive ways. That's why we see the high numbers. Just because NFTs you know, have these like mechanisms that are operating in the background that make them very valuable. Which is counterintuitive, again, to a lot of people at first. Because they're like, I can't touch it. I can't feel it. Like, why is it valuable? But really what makes like scarce digital collectibles and scarce pieces of art valuable is the authenticity. And because NFTs have that better than anything else, that's why they're selling for these like really, really high prices, if that makes sense. Definitely. I think once it ends up on the blockchain, especially a really well-tested blockchain like Ethereum, obviously the authenticity is completely traceable. And to somehow compromise that, you would have to basically 51% attack the Ethereum blockchain. That's practically impossible. But would you say step one of the authenticity process is maybe the weakest, which is when the artwork is being kind of declared and added onto the blockchain? That part is still kind of, today it seems to be in the realm of the artist declaring it in the public sphere, on Twitter, on their website, or on a platform like Nifty, that part is still, I guess, a little bit messy and chaotic and relies on some kind of implicit trust. Is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, that's definitely a fair interpretation. It's cool to think about a future where every artist or every citizen has their own private key and they're signing transactions and like that is like provably authentic worldwide. But, you know, we're just like not quite there yet. And so the authentic, yeah, the step one is the weakest link in the chain. And right now that relies on like the same forms of authenticity that other stuff does. You know, you have to see the artist tweeting about it or like on a platform like Nifty. This is why we curate so heavily. Like every artist we launch with, we've had multiple video calls with that artist. And like, it's impossible for a fake work to make it on Nifty. But some of the more open platforms have had issues with uh, fakes and like things like that, you know, and NFTs don't prevent against that attack vector. Like that can definitely still happen. So you're right. Watch out for those deep fake artists on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, that's, that would be nuts. Yeah, I don't know. Or like Banksy. I would love to launch with Banksy, but like, how do we know it's really Banksy? There must be a way, but like, I don't know what that way is. Like, he's anonymous. Like, so. so Griffin, I guess, yeah, you bring up a really good point here. And, you know, the way that I think about the role that Nifty Gateway plays is as a curation platform first, and then, you know, you're the actual buying and selling mechanism second. But just curious how you see that ecosystem developing. Is it going to be that you have these curation houses like Nifty keep popping up for the art space? Or do we see like more of a balance where it's uh, more open sea and anyone can mint? Because I think then you run into an oversupply problem. And that may be good and may be bad. I'm just curious to get your take because anyone can mint these, I guess, in the same way that anyone can create art and try to sell it. How do you weed out and what the process looks like for curation on Nifty Gateway? Yeah, that's a great question. You kind of like put the nail on the head for one, you know, one of the big challenges for NFTs. And it's also a challenge for the traditional art world, like you said, because anyone can make art and sell it. So when Doug and I started Nifty Gateway, we were very intentional about our decision to curate heavily and like only work with select people. 
And the reason for that was basically exactly what you said. You know, anyone who's entered NFTs recently doesn't really know about this period or like they weren't around for it. But two years ago when we started Nifty Gateway, a lot of the open platforms were flooded with like what we called crypto crap, which, you know, generally wasn't from artists. It wasn't from people putting in their best effort. It was someone like doing a knockoff of like a, a messy card or like a Ronaldo image and like trying to sell it. And like, it's just so easy to mint an NFT that with an open platform, you become so inundated. So when we started Nifty Gateway, we were like, our approach is going to be completely different and kind of different from the traditional tech wisdom where it's like, we curate very heavily. We partner directly with artists and, you know, we make sure that everything we launch is like, has meaning. Like every NFT we launch, we want to like be proud of having launched 10 years from now. And that's kind of like something we talk about a lot internally. And that's like what we're trying to build a creative team to do. You know, we do try to be a partner to the artist. Nifty is pretty similar to an art gallery. And art galleries are pretty interesting businesses. Most people in the tech world don't really know too much about them just because they don't get talked about as much as like an Uber and Airbnb would. But, you know, some art galleries are very, very big, very like profitable companies. And they serve like as a similar quality filter in the art world. You know, for example, Gagosian Gallery is one of the biggest galleries. They probably do a billion dollars in sales a year. And they're doing about, you know, they're taking a 40% cut of that. So they're making 400 million in revenue a year. And that's of that, it's probably $200, $300 million profit. It's like Craigslist, where it's this company that people don't really talk about that much, but like it's insanely profitable when you actually look at it. So part of Nifty is kind of like an art gallery at the scale of the internet, where we try to partner with creators from all walks of life. But you know, art galleries are limited by geography. And Nifty is trying to be an art gallery that the whole world can access, which is still curated and like we still try to produce like high quality stuff. We're also a bit of a platform, you know, like it's always a, a challenge. Because we've been saying no to people in the last few weeks. Like I actually had to shut down my email address because there was one email I had publicly facing on the Nifty site. I was getting about 100 cold reach outs an hour. So I just had to nuke it. I set up an auto response being like, I'm not checking this email anymore. Like, I'm sorry. Just because we've gotten like so much inbound interest. In the past few weeks, we've turned down people that we would have like killed to work with six months ago. So it's always a challenge. We always want to launch high quality content. And, you know, we're trying to build a creative team that can figure out like what that means and what high quality content looks like. But it's not easy. It's definitely more of an art than a science. Absolutely. Yeah, those are great points. And something that at ARC we've been having internal debates about, because anyone can mint in such an you know easy fashion. I think when I first found out about NFTs, I went on to a site called Rarible and I minted an NFT. I spent, I think, $50 in gas fees but I minted an NFT and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And if I can do this, anyone can do it because, and part of that, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I actually think that's an amazing thing. And it kind of leads to, because we're just talking about, in my perspective, just one piece of NFTs being art. I see this as kind of creating a new asset class for digital content across the board. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just fascinated by how NFTs are shaping the art space first. And I think that's really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to you know what this technology enables. Yeah, I totally agree. NFTs are like, you know, it does kind of remind me of the boom in the internet in the 90s or in Bitcoin in 2017, where there's just like this really, really rapid growth. And like both of those, like it ended up getting a little bit frothy. I don't think it would be the craziest thing to think that NFTs are getting a bit ahead of themselves, like especially with the growth we've seen in the last two months. Like there's just been remarkable growth. But everybody seems to like really understand that the 10 year time frame for NFTs is just like very, very positive. And like it's you know starting to hit people what a transformative technology it is. 
So that's been really cool. Someone who's like worked in it for a couple of years to have people recognize all the possibilities. And like, as for how the ecosystem is going to play out, I mean, I don't know, like we'll have to see. I know how Nifty Gateway is going to approach it. Like we're going to just like keep trying to launch like really high quality stuff and like work with all the world's best artists and like be a, a partner to artists. And like, we kind of have our segment, which is, like I said, an art gallery at the scale of the internet. And like, that is something that works, but there's just so much other possibility and like, you know, liquid IP is really interesting. Digital property rights in the age of the internet, obviously video game NFTs are a huge open possibility. And then the second order effects are fascinating to contemplate too. You know, once like all this creativity is turned into a financial asset and can be retokenized or sold, you know, on Uniswap, where you can like buy insurance against it or, you know, all these developments, once NFTs really reach like a large amount of saturation, it's fascinating to think what the second order effects will be. Just like with the internet, you know, the internet like got a, a little bit of ahead of itself in the late nineties, but the promise was already there. And now here in the 2010s, we've seen, you know, the second order effects of the internet operating at scale in the world. And it's just had like an enormous impact on society. NFTs and blockchain tech, you know, are almost certainly going to be the same way. And, you know, I can't pretend to know what's going to happen. I just know a lot of stuff will, and it'll be like fun to watch. Which industries or companies in the world do you think are just super well positioned to take advantage of NFTs. To me, like one thing I saw, this is not my thought, someone else tweeted is like, Disney is going to make the most amount of money off NFTs of any company. Like that got me thinking, do you see any obvious kind of opportunities like that at a company or industry level for the next couple of years? Well, I think one company that's incredibly well positioned is Epic Games. You know, Tim Sweeney has talked a lot about the metaverse. And like, at first we kind of thought Fortnite was the enemy because they like, block everything in their ecosystem. But now having listened to interviews with him and like gotten a little bit more perspective on what he thinks, to me, it seems like it won't be long until Epic Games has some sort of big blockchain initiative that they roll out where they start like tokenizing all their in-game assets. And as, you know, basically the biggest purveyor of metaverse technology, like having a product that hundreds of millions of people use, the impact from that will just be like monumental. And, you know, people haven't talked about that as much because the video game use case for NFTs hasn't taken off as much as it will. But, you know, that's another one who's like absolutely well positioned. I do think IP creators like Disney and Nintendo who have just IP that people absolutely love are like very well positioned. And NFTs are an interesting like proof of work. You know, you have to put your money where your mouth is. With influencers, like there are people who have millions of followers on YouTube but can't really sell, you know, they can't sell a hundred t-shirts because like maybe the people following them just like aren't that into them. Like, all these brands have different levels of like true passion from the fans. But, you know, Pokemon is one of the ones that has like just the largest amount of passion. I mean, imagine a Pikachu NFT, like the authentic one of one Pikachu NFT. Like how much would that be worth? You know, maybe in the billions. Like, that would be worth the GDP of a small country. Yeah, right. Like that's crazy to think about, especially because, you know, our whole generation like grew up with Pokemon and it meant so much to them. So, yeah, I think those companies are well positioned. Like anyone who has IP all of a sudden has like a phenomenal way to monetize it that just wasn't available before. The same is true of sports leagues who are also like very well positioned. And then anyone who's a creator, I do think, yeah, we'll see secondary effects where creators may bundle equity in the form of tokens or something that they monetize via NFTs. I really wish securities laws were less restrictive in the United States so that a lot more experimentation could happen here. Or if the government would just like you know, provide clear guidance on like how tokens function or don't function in security. And I do think if something like that happens, it'll open up a huge amount of creative possibility. You know, I think that'll happen within the next few years. So that's another really big space to watch is the opportunity from buying tokens attached to creators 
and then are monetized via NFTs. Griffin, I just want to touch on one point that you made here. And I love the idea that Epic Games and there's this whole suite of companies that can take advantage of the NFT technology. But you brought up a point of saying, you know, Epic Games would have to develop its own blockchain to tokenize its in-game assets. Is that not something that an Ethereum platform or a blockchain that's already out there today could support? Would it have to be in-house? And wouldn't that then go against the idea of blockchains as decentralized platforms? Yeah. Okay. If I said that, I misspoke. I didn't mean to say that. Yeah. I think they would definitely go do it on Ethereum. Like these blockchains have very strong network effects just like anything else. And like the, the network effects with Ethereum are immensely powerful. And you know, Ethereum has had some trouble scaling. Right now it's very expensive to mint NFTs, which is a huge operational difficulty for us. I mean, minting NFTs is by far our largest expense right now as a company. But with technology, there's always the opportunity to push back. So Ethereum 2.0 is going to be huge for this. And then also we have a new minting system coming out in a few weeks that will allow us to basically batch mint a lot of the higher edition NFTs, and it's going to cut our minting costs down to basically like 1% of what they are now. So like that'll just go away as a cost center. I think it's just like the internet. You know, a really good analogy is when Netflix, you know, in 2003, 2004, Netflix knew that streaming was going to happen over the internet eventually. Like they knew that broadband would improve to the point where it could happen. And like Blockbuster, a lot of their competitors just weren't cognizant of that. But the internet just kept improving incrementally. And then in 2008, Netflix launched their streaming. And now you know, they're one of the biggest companies in the world. I think it's just like that. Ethereum is like incrementally improving. Like from a 40,000 foot view, Ethereum is like absolutely going to scale. And like, that would be my bet. Um, you know, the blockchain that's going to like host all of this. Maybe just a little background for folks who are not following Ethereum closely. I mean, I think the three of us are somewhat in touch with the narrative, but to most people, Ethereum is just a word, right? So I think the common criticism is, basically too many people. Ethereum is basically a service in a way. And all these NFT, the explosion of NFTs basically is running on Ethereum. So it's overtaxed the network. And as a result, the price of using the network has gone up a lot. The price is measured in this unit called gas. What is the cost to mint an NFT today? Nick mentioned $30. That was a couple of weeks ago. That's one of the big criticisms is it costs so much to mint an NFT that sometimes it's more expensive than the content itself. Another is a scaling criticism, which is like, uh, because it's so expensive, you can't, you couldn't have 100x, 1000x more NFTs on the network today as it stands. I think those are kind of the main lines of criticism today. Griffin, you mentioned it will scale. So what does that mean? And what is the, you know, six month, maybe a year down the track? What does that look like? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I think the cost to mint an NFT today is it's like $150 or something. It depends on like what the price of gas is. And anyone who's been in Ethereum for a while remembers the summer when this craze called yield farming took off and gas was like even pricier than it was now. And like, I don't know, it's like you learn to live with like fluctuating gas prices and it's pretty hellish, but like it's kind of something that people have gotten used to and like we're all in this together. I don't know. So for us, Nifty Gateway is a centralized exchange, which has really helped us a lot. And I think there's developments like that. You know, running a centralized exchange is very similar to how L2 layer two networks work, which also like give you a lot of scalability. So for us, like our only transaction we need to call on Ethereum is minting the NFTs, buying and selling NFTs between people, you know, similar to the way Coinbase and Gemini work, like all happens like on our centralized database. And then we also have to, you know, if someone withdraws their NFT from Nifty Gateway, which they can do, we have to call a blockchain transaction to do that. And, you know, users will always have the ability to withdraw the same way they can withdraw from like Coinbase or Gemini, because it doesn't make much sense to run a centralized exchange 
otherwise. But you know, for us, like we have been able to being like customer focused and like we always have the mindset of like what's going to be easiest for the customer. And instead of like forcing them to self custody, we're going to be like we'll just give them the option. They can custody their NFTs themselves if they want, or they can like keep them on Nifty Gateways custody, which is powered by Gemini. So you know, I think that's one example of scalability, which is already happening. And L2s are another big one. And then Ethereum 2.0. I'm not going to say I have the best understanding of it, but from my understanding, like you know, it does have a shard architecture that I think will allow for these transactions to be much cheaper. And you know, my impression of the Ethereum community is that they're taking their time and doing it right. You know, they're not rushing out Ethereum 2.0. These things move slower in a decentralized environment, but Ethereum, like being such a breakthrough when it came out, being the first programmable blockchain, has such a lead. And you know, they're just taking their time and making sure to implement a more scalable architecture. In a timely manner, but you know, progress on Ethereum 2.0 has been progressing well, from what I understand, and that will be a game changer. I don't know, James. Maybe you know better than I do the like the nuances of how Ethereum 2.0 works. I wish I did, Griffin, but I think I'm at roughly your level. Essentially, they have a bunch of proposals in place, and it will essentially help with scaling. And yeah, I'm not going to try to get into the IP proposals and all that. But maybe this is just one good point to cover while we're on this topic, which is that. You know the reason why NFTs have such broad base adoption and such high perceived value is that they do live. We've had digitally scarce assets before, but they've always lived inside of, call it a private database or a company's database. It is not something that exists on the internet. Like if you bought a skin in Fortnite or if you bought a weapon inside of Counter Strike or something, that lives inside of a company server. If that company disappears, the asset disappears. That characteristic kind of this is a point you made by the way. I listened to your Bankless podcast. That characteristic basically means that it kind of puts a hard cap on the value that can be accrued to digital items today because it just seems like this arbitrary thing stored by someone and it could go away anytime. But NFTs as a category have such high perceived value and I guess a shared belief among people because it is on a completely public blockchain like Ethereum that's owned by no one, that's guaranteed pretty much to be around. And it's not at the mercy of some company existing or being managed in a responsible way. Yeah, totally. And that does like accrue such, you know, incredible value to it. I mean, you know, the technology that secures NFTs is the same technology that secures billions of dollars of like decentralized finance transactions and, you know, tens of billions of dollars of value, you know, which is a very powerful thing in order to actually like steal an NFT, like applying that security to money is much more important generally than art. So the fact that like NFTs have this like incredible infrastructure behind them really does yeah, give them an immense amount of value. And yeah, I think, you know, Ethereum, it's going to be around in 10 years without a doubt. And like, they've always been very committed to building a decentralized architecture. I think that's the kind of thing that like matters until it doesn't. But, you know, I think decentralization will become more and more important. It kind of happens when there's shocks to the system. Similarly, like, I think how remote work is like, you know, remote work was going to happen inevitably, but because of the shock to the system of COVID and quarantine, it just like accelerated the adoption a lot. I think the same is true of decentralized digital systems. Like, you know, now that technology is here, it really is inevitable. And like, it'll just be shocks that accelerate their adoption. Like, for example, the Lebanese banking crisis, where the Lebanese government took like 40% of everyone's bank account or something. Like, that's just like an element that like really accelerates like decentralization. Or something else I've talked about in a few other podcasts is like, I was reading a history of World War II, and, you know, there's a billionaire family in Shanghai. Who all of their wealth was locked up in a big hotel in Shanghai. And then, first of all, the Japanese invaded. 
And then, you know, the Communist Party of China took control four years later after World War II ended. And all of a sudden their wealth was just gone. And like being a technologist, I couldn't just help but think like, what if they did have a way to like to store their wealth like Bitcoin? And you'd just been able to put it in there and like through the country. You know, like when you read history, like you realize how much technology would have changed those events if it was around at the time. So yeah, I think it's just a matter of time until decentralization starts mattering more and more. And those shocks just kind of make it more powerful. That's a really interesting point you bring up because I, you know, talking to Yassine, Arc's crypto analyst, he always talks about this idea of, you know, if you ever did need to flee the country and take your assets with you, Bitcoin would be that, you know, perfect asset to take with you, right? You download it onto a hard key and you can now take your wealth with you. But now with NFTs, it seems like you can actually take more than just Bitcoin or more than just Ethereum. You can take these virtual goods with you. Right, you can download that onto a wallet and go wherever you need to go. It's borderless. Like imagine trying to take a cargo ship of digital artwork with you in a moment's notice. Can I just make a point of clarification? I know what you mean, and but people talk about it like this, but there's a subtle difference in that you're not actually taking it with you. The thing was never with you. The thing is in the cloud, right? right? The thing, every copy of the ledger out there on the internet, like it's distributed in servers from Uruguay to Cambodia to whatever. It's like, you're not taking anything. The thing is always static on the internet. You're just memorizing your key one way or the other and just making sure you don't forget that. So the stuff... The reason why it can't be seized and the reason why it's so easy to take is because you're not taking anything. The thing is not in your house or in your computer. It's out there. It's in the cloud. Right. Yeah. That's a good clarification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. But it's still like such cool tech when you start thinking about it, like the fact that it works like that. And like, because it's in this digital world, you know, it has all the like beneficial properties of like physical items where it's like you can truly own it. But then it also has all the beneficial ones of digital ones too, where it can be sent to anyone instantly. And, you know, NFT is like, I feel like it's weird at first, but it really started to click for me when I was just like, you know, like we've already made currency scarce. This is just applying the same thing to like collectibles and artwork, which are another like very significant store of value in the world and like really always have been. So I don't know. It's just the coolest thing to think about. And then like once humans start going to space, I mean, just imagine then like your wealth travels across planets, like across solar systems. It's really fascinating to think about the implications and, you know, the implication, like I study abroad in Argentina and, you know, just the poor citizens of Argentina, you know, it's just such a brutal place to like be a citizen. And the only money the government is trying to give you access to is this currency that they just like recklessly debase and, you know, they recklessly borrow money and default like clockwork every 20 years. And it just like degrades your quality of life so significantly. And so like a technology that like really takes that power out of the hands of governments and just like enables people across the world. It's just so transformative. And I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. It's really cool to like work on and be a part of and to think about all the benefits that this will bring, like not just now, but like 10 years from now and 20 years from now. So most of my net worth is in Bitcoin too, by the way. So I'm also like talking my book a little bit. I always come on with the uh, backgrounds of the NFTs I own because I, I want to get them exposure, but it, like it's important. This NFT is like one I'm a really big fan of. It's one of my favorites. So I'm never going to sell it anyway. And Griffin, just for those that are listening at home with no visual key, what is exactly your background? I see it. It looks like a fight between ancient Romans of sorts. I'm not quite sure here, but I would love to hear more about that specific story. Okay, well, yeah, my the NFT in the background is called The Last Stand of the Nation State, and it's by an artist named Slime Sunday, who's like one of our bigger NFT, Nifty Gateway artists. And he's great. He's a really, really nice guy, very talented artist. I helped him collaborate on 
this one because he, you know, he wanted to do stuff that was more blockchain themed. And he had the idea of adding the Bitcoin logo to the shield of someone in this, I think it's some classical painting, I'm not sure. But you know, it depicts a fight between two armies and there's the forces of, of Bitcoin on one side and the forces of fiat on the other. And you know, it's called the last stand of the nation state. It's, it clearly appeals to a certain piece demographic, but I don't know. It's just such a cool piece of artwork. And this is actually one of the most popular NFTs on Nifty Gateway. It sold for $40 originally, and now it's worth 15000 I actually, I bought 10 of them. I said this in the Bankless one too. And like, everyone like asked me to stop talking about this because I bring it up constantly. But I bought 10 of them and I gave away seven as a present. And I just never regretted anything more than giving away seven of these because I thought I was giving away a little like $40 NFT. But I was giving away something worth $15,000. Don't feel bad, Griffin. On a whim, I gifted Nick a Grimes Newborn 4 because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Oh, my God. I've, I've talked to people who gave away like a people open edition or like a people politics is bullshit, which are now worth like... Oh, my God. Oh, no. Oh. Yeah. I know. It can. It hurt yeah. it's, it's painful. It's hurt. painful to think about. Yeah. But it's so amazing that it's so frictionless and you feel such spontaneous generosity. Totally, totally. And yeah, anyone who's listening and hasn't bought an NFT yet, I would have two pieces of advice, which is, first of all, like, just go ahead and try buying one. And then second of all, like, be really careful once you do, because it's like insanely addictive. And like, you really have no idea how addicting it is until you try it. And like, even my mom is like, she's like, I spent like $3,000 on NFTs this week. Like, please help me. Like, <laughs> this is such a bad habit. Like, I keep spending all this money. And I'm like, yeah, like, I don't know. You can see that on the Nifty Gateway user behavior too. Like, even from when we launched, I was really bullish long-term on how Nifty Gateway would do. Just because like, we were able to look at the user stats and to see how much money all our customers were spending on NFTs and like, just how addicting it is. You know, I think it's like the early days of Facebook. Where, like, everybody said, like, oh, Facebook's just a toy or like, the social media thing is kind of a joke. But you know, even Zuckerberg like, was kind of skeptical at first because he didn't use Facebook that much. But he was able to look at the user stats and he was like, people are spending like, four, five, six hours a day on this thing, like every day. Like, you know, the numbers spoke for themselves. And I think with NFTs, the exact same thing is true. Like you look at the customer spend for early adopters and the appreciation, like the numbers really speak for themselves. So long-term, I think it'll just be an enormous, enormous industry. Let's talk about Nifty for a bit, back to kind of the platform. I'm a big user of the platform. I'm pretty deep in the Discord. And I would say that while your customers are, you know, super big fans, are also some of the most vocal critics and one thing is just kind of infrastructure. I mean, it's great you've built such a popular platform, but I joked on Twitter that Nifty Gateway is a platform that breaks like clockwork every 7 p.m. And, Dude, yeah, I saw your you tweet know, about That's that. like semi-flattering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's been like, a You're almost like remind me of early Twitter days. So what do you guys like? Okay, I used to cover cloud computing and there's like... I'm under the impression we're in the era of cloud computing and we have elastic compute now and you can just procure and spin up servers dynamically for load. Why is Nifty still breaking every 7 p.m.? Yeah, it's a great question. Okay, the truth is like Duncan and I were the ones who wrote a lot of the original Nifty Gateway code base. And like that's still a lot of the code that's there. And when we were writing it, like we were in 100% move fast and break things mode. Like we really just tried to ship features out quickly and we did not like build them to scale. And that just combined with us growing like much, much quicker than we thought we would. Like all of a sudden, like we've had multiple months where our monthly volume went up by five or six X in a single month over month period, which is just like such insane levels of growth. Even historically, like that sort of growth is very rare among like even the fastest growing companies like the Airbnbs and the Ubers and the Amazons. The growth of us and like Topshot too, like it really is kind of unprecedented historically. 
So, you know, I would say like, it's just genuinely very tough to keep up with. But, you know, now we're basically like taking the problem a lot more seriously. We have a new CTO who comes from Gemini and Gemini has been built to scale for a while. And they like really emphasize robustness early on. You know, the stuff that was breaking, it's not just like adding more servers. It's like, it's always something different, right? Like you add more servers, you take care of that. And then all of a sudden, like it turns out the system you built to send cash outs to people's like Gemini accounts is like out of Ethereum. And like, it's only built to send like a hundred cash outs an hour. So like we had 500 cash outs that hour. So then it like crashes. So then we have to like go through and resend all those cash outs. But then all of a sudden, like our database gets jammed because like we don't have enough, you know, because it's like really tough to update a database when thousands and thousands of people are pouring on your site all at once. Like it's always like some small little thing. And it's just a situation where we hadn't like planned for this growth. So, you know, we have a new CTO, we're building processes. And I think robustness is like a key focus for us. Like <laughs> there's no reason we shouldn't be able to handle it. You're right. In the cloud era, like it's totally doable. Awesome. I would just say communicate more with your customers and fans. I think a lot of people asking questions in the Discord, and I think they're just looking for some reassurance. I'm sure you're already doing that, but like, I think more would definitely help along those lines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's good advice. It's definitely very stressful being the founder. Like the last couple months have just been horrible, just from like all the stress and like trying to keep up with it. And you know, yeah, we've all kind of had to work every weekend. But I think communication is something we could be doing better at. Like I'll have to make sure to try and do that. So that's good feedback. It's always good to hear back from users. I appreciate it. Griffin, I actually want to touch on here, and I guess James had motives coming in given he's a nifty uh, user and he had an opportunity to give some direct feedback here. But I do think just given that I'm also a user on Nifty, how big a role Discord is in helping me understand what's happening in the community. I'm actually able to speak with some of the artists right there on Discord. How do you feel about just the broader community and where all of this is happening, right? If I'm, I guess maybe the better question is here, I'm someone just getting into NFTs this week. Where do I go? Is it Discord? Where is this all happening? Yeah, Discord, I think is a really great place to get into it. Twitter, like most of NFT world lives on Twitter. We see a lot of friend groups get into it, right? Like people just get into it with their friends. They're like, they have a group chat talking about every drop. You know, I think that's how a lot of people hear about it is they just like have their friends tell them about it and they're like, yo, like you got to buy this NFT. This is sick. Yeah, I would say join our Discord, start following a lot of the relevant accounts on Twitter. And yeah, I don't know, Discord, it's fun, but it's also a double-edged sword. Like you give your community a place to communicate, but also to like flame you very publicly. So it's always kind of like tough as a company because like when we do something wrong, which like of course, you know, happens, like it's just a great place for people to get mad at us. So, you know. It is what it is. Like I really do feel badly about how the platform has had trouble scaling, and you know we're all hands on deck, just like trying to take care of that because like robustness issues just shouldn't be happening, and I think we can take care of it. What do you think the current state of the NFT art market? It seems like at a huge run up in late January uh, to you know February and early March, and maybe there's some indigestion in this very moment. I'm still relatively new to this, so this might have happened in the last year or sometime, and I just wasn't there for it. But right now we're seeing some of the, you know, earliest, some of the latest drops from pretty good artists start trading lower in the secondaries. Is this a new phenomenon? Is this, has this happened in the past? And how are you thinking about it, in, especially maybe in terms of planning for, like, is there too much supply right now? And like, just kind of calibrating the appetite of this market. Yeah, it's a great question. It definitely has happened in the past. You know, for all of us who have been here for a while, the market, like, comes and goes in like wild swings, very similar to the crypto market, you know, where Bitcoin 
like shoots way up and then it drops down a little bit lower and then it shoots like way up a few years later. You know, I think there's like peaks and valleys. And as for open editions trading down on the secondary market, you know, that happens too. Like the open edition markets in our experience do take three to six months to really mature and like get in the hands of the right collectors. But, you know, overall, I would say like, you know, if you're speculating buying NFTs, like you still are speculating. It's tough. Like with collectibles, like I think it's important that people buy stuff they like want to buy and like really care about and like connect with the artist and like, you know, want to hold on to you for like five or 10 years. And like we tell people to do that, which like I do think a lot of people have entered the space recently who are, you know, more looking to speculate. And like, you know, that's fine too, but we definitely can't guarantee that every piece of art is going to go up in value. And, you know, let's not even really try to think about it. Like we try to like work with our artists to make stuff that like, is meaningful and like people want to own like for, just for the sake of owning it not own so that they can like sell it to someone else and like you know counterintuitively that is like where the real value comes in art markets like from like pieces that people like want to own you know just because like you know for their own sake just because they personally value it so yeah i don't know i would just say like be a long-term investor though like you know focus on like five to ten year time frames i think that's just good investment advice in general like momentum investing can be a dangerous game and day trading, like we usually don't even get the S&P. So that's something I've really learned from Cameron and Tyler too. You know, they're the absolute kings of that strategy. And they just, you know, they bought all that Bitcoin in 2012. And like, I don't think it's crossed their mind once that they should sell it. Like not even, even though most of their net worth is in Bitcoin. And like, even the day it dropped 50% last March, like, boy, like I remember that, like that was a shitty day, but like, I was like, I'm not going to sell my Bitcoin. And like, I don't know, like, I just think it's really important to have a long time frame in investing. And I think the same is true of NFTs. Thank you so much, Griffin and James, for coming on. This was amazing. And let's just keep an eye out for NFTs because it sounds like they're here to stay. Thanks, Nick. It's awesome. Thanks, Griffin. Yeah, thanks, guys. Cheers. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.